Welcome back, everyone. This is Ashanti Golar, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and welcome to season six. We are excited to have you back with us, and we are also very excited about today's special guest, our first repeat guest, Alexis Miguel Johnson, who is the CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And for those of you who don't know, Planned Parenthood is a nonprofit organization that provides sexual health care in the United States and globally. Alexis, how are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. How are you, Ashanti? It's so good to see you again. It's so good to see you. And I love the fact that you are our first repeat guest. You're one of my favorite people. I know I was super ecstatic when they named you the permanent CEO of Planned Parenthood. Because in my mind, I was like, well, was there any other choice? I obviously can't tweet that. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm just going to tweet my congratulations. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't think it was going to feel as different to become permanent, you know, like when, when somebody actually puts a ring on it, um, but it <laughs> when you're just living together for a long time and then you're like, oh, um, but I felt so honored and humbled that, that the organization and the boards would put that kind of faith in me to carry us forward. Well, the perfect choice, well-deserved. 2020 was quite the year, as we know, and 2021 is already giving 2020 a run for its money. So I do have to get your thoughts on the insurrection at the Capitol, because the fact is it was an insurrection. And when you and I had our first chat, just our first girlfriend chat, first leading organizations chat, we talked a lot about what was going on in the country, particularly racially, and how the Trump administration, you know, was feeling a lot of things. How, how are you feeling about everything that has happened? It was devastating. And when you actually think about the, the day of January 6th, you know, for most of us, particularly, I know you were, as I was, like up all night watching the returns for uh, the Georgia Senate race and trying to just hold on to that last shred of hope. You know, as you said, 2020 just tried its, its level best to get rid of. And, and um, like Reverend Warnock said, Psalm 35, joy comes in the morning, right? Joy will come in the morning. Yes. And it did. And it did by midday to watch that just full-throated, unapologetic demonstration of white supremacy and anti-democracy and the weaponization of racial anxiety over and over again. And you, you think about just like when they said win at all costs, this is what they meant. Right. Yes. That they were really winning, willing to destroy democracy, to destroy the integrity and the belief in that, that, that just really undercores everything that America is. Right. We, we are at best, you know, we are we are a nation state because we are an imagined community. Right. We have to bind ourselves together with these notions. And, you know, while so many, particularly black women, have been on the front line trying to claw our way into democracy, right? Yes. Like foot in the door, like we are not going to let this door of democracy close on us. They were there trying to destroy it. And so it, it, it just, it's, it's a wound, you know, to know after the November election that half of America still supports a misogynistic patriarchal 
racist, you know, pig. And then at the same time that they are so willing to, to fight for that last gasp, that it is just terrifying. I agree with you. And I was talking to someone and they're like, where do you think this came from? And I said, this has really been building since 2008 when we had the audacity to elect a black man as president. We saw the rise of the Tea Party. We saw the rise of birtherism. And 2016 was very much about keeping our country for the people that we think it is for. I wasn't surprised how close the election was. I would tell people all the time, I'm like, this thing is virtually tied. I felt in my heart we could eke it out, you know, and we did. I'm very excited about Georgia. I was telling people, I have lots of friends who are down there running things and they are extremely talented and good. So I think that they can eke this out. But it stays in my mind that 70 million of our fellow Americans were 100% fine with the direction that the country was going in. But we have a new president. We have a new vice president. We got a brown girl in the White House. What are your feelings about the Biden-Harris administration? I mean, first of all, just how exciting it is. Like you, you just don't really know how, how much representation matters until you, you see it in all of its pomp and circumstance and, you know, the pride that you feel your heart swelling, just looking at Vice President Kamala Harris take the stage just as a brown girl. You know, we've seen, we've seen President Biden, um, on stage before, but Vice President Harris, we, we haven't. And so like, that's just a moment to like exhale and pause and just revel in it. And, and, you know, the excitement around it isn't just about the representation from a symbolic standpoint, but substantively, we just know she is going to bring it right. We know that what we've already seen from this administration, the the ways in which they've configured the cabinet, the, the White House personnel to your friend, like some of your friends, our friends together. Yes. <laughs> so excited for our friends going to be running things. They're the truth, right? I mean, none of it is siloed, right? Like it is, even though there there is a, a focus on racial equity, it is also embedded in the domestic policy council, right? Even though there's a yes. focus on gender, we see it embodied throughout, you know, every cabinet. And so just the notion of like, you know, how to bring to bear not just an intersectional framework, but actually turn that intersectionality into policymaking is just so exciting. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. I'm very excited about Deb Holland, who will be our first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary. I mean, perfect person. Excited about Neera Tandon. Excited about Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. Vanita Gupta, Justice. <laughs> I know. Javier Becerra. I feel like it's a little like, like I feel like Parliament Chocolate City coming <laughs> I love it. And just the fact that we know these are great people, they're wonderful public servants. I know I'm just going to be sleeping so much better at night knowing that these are the people who are going to be running our country and they have a 
huge task ahead of them. Absolutely. I mean, we know we got four years. There's a lot to be done and it's going to be a heavy lift. And I want to switch to an amazing article that you wrote. I saw it on your Twitter account and you shared your 2021 resolutions And I want to go through it and talk about some of the things that relate to your work at Planned Parenthood, but there are also some things there that were really personal. And for me, it reminded me, this is why I love Alexis, is this wasn't just talking about your work, but you were also speaking to women, to people in general about taking it easy on ourselves because we've gone through a lot over the past four years We're still in the middle of a pandemic. We just saw another attack on democracy fueled by racism. So there's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) But starting with your resolutions, you really said we do have to hold the Biden-Harris administration accountable on sexual and reproductive health. So what are some of the immediate things that Planned Parenthood would like to see from the administration? I think the notion of having a very strong outside game to complement the very strong inside leadership, I think first and foremost is 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 something really that we should we should highlight. The the work that Planned Parenthood has done in concert with 90 organizations in the reproductive health rights and justice field to come together around a blueprint agenda so that we would be ready on day one, as long as they were ready on day one, I think is really is really important. You know, the, your point about the last four years having been so horrible, including the last couple of weeks on the, the Supreme Court ruling on, on REMS, is that we do have to undo the harm from the last four years. Like th- that is a lot of work. But what the Biden-Harris administration has shown us throughout their campaigning and conversation is that they are willing to move, right? They are willing to learn and move and understand how these policies actually impact real people and and connect the dots to the lived experience. And so we're, we're looking to make sure that this administration's commitment to sexual and reproductive health care is demonstrated by eliminating the global gag rule, right? We should not be telling other countries, you know, um, who, who, who need yep. um, aid, you know, what their policies should be around um, around abortion. We want to start the process of rolling back the harmful policies like the Title X domestic gag rule, right? We need to make it easier to expand access to family planning. And I think we have an opportunity not only to restore Title X, but also build it back better and modernize it um, in all of the ways in which, you know, the Biden-Harris administration is, um, is thinking. And, you know, we do need to ask the incoming administration, the current administration to to keep medication abortion easier to access, particularly during the pandemic and to reduce those restrictions. And so, you know, those are just some of the beginning conversations that that we have had. But, you know, we are we are committing to work with this administration on the long term fight, you know, to also make sure, I guess, that we are repealing the Hyde and, and Helms amendments or eliminating them altogether, which they can do just in in the ways in which they write their budgets. And so it's exciting to have congressional majorities in in both um, houses and the White House uh, and have started those conversations around why it's so important to repeal discriminatory laws and bans and why it is so important for us to 
to show up in a full-throated way in support of sexual and reproductive health care. Absolutely. And also in the article, you just mentioned the Hyde Amendment. You called for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. And can you tell our listeners just exactly why this is bad for women of color? Because when we hear it talked about a lot, particularly by Congresswomen of color, they say this is so harmful for women of color. So can you elaborate a little bit on that for the listeners? Yeah, of course. Look, the the Hyde Amendment restricts people who depend on Medicaid, essentially, or federal programs for health care from getting access or using their health insurance to access safe and legal abortion. So we're talking about people with low incomes. We're talking about largely women of color, young people, transgender, non-binary people, you know, a policy that disproportionately impacts in that way is just racist, right? It's, it's, you know, beyond discriminatory, it's actually racist. And I think when you see, and I would love like your listeners to look up the amazing conversation um, and speech that Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, another brown girl gave tying together the, the, the twin pandemic of 2020 into 2021, right, of, the, of COVID and the race reckoning and the disproportionate impact on people of color. Um, and so I just think that finding ways to eliminate Hyde, ensuring that people really understand what's at stake. Young people get it. They, they, like almost two thirds of young people support Medicaid coverage for abortion. And we know like the majority of Americans actually support access to abortion in every state state. There's no state, not even Georgia, that don't believe it should be the law of the land. And so we have to make sure our policies expand that that access and repealing Hyde or eliminating Hyde actually would be one of those ways to do that. And talking about Georgia and the states, a little bit more about the work Planned Parenthood is going to be doing to make sure that women have their freedom around healthcare, sexual reproduction in the states, because just like the Supreme Court, we are seeing just so many states just, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, just, you know, tap, tap, tapping away at trying to just take us back. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, look, I I think um, as excited as I am around um, our White House and our uh, current Congress, you know, it is it is still alarming that that we have a uh, essentially a super majority on the other side of the Supreme Court, as well as the the lasting legacy of uh, the McConnell administration, you know, pushing through all of those conservative judges. And so, you know, the work that we need to do to, you know, while Roe is certainly under threat, there are 18 cases that are literally one step away from the Supreme Court that will chip or harden those chips permanently in in that law and in every state that that has been um, hostile to access to sexual reproductive health care. There are people organizing around bans to continue to further erode freedom. And so what that means, right, if Roe falls or if they, you know, lock into something that that just is, you know, basically makes Roe in name only across the board is that there will be some states where if you make a decision to uh, terminate your pregnancy, you will be able to do so without restriction and, you know, supported to do that. And in other states, you'll be forced into pregnancy if you are not able to get the resources to travel out. That's something like 25 million women of reproductive age who are living in states 
that um, be hostile. And I think that that is what we know won't happen is people won't stop trying to seek access to abortion, right? So like putting that undue burden, we've seen it obviously during COVID, people traveling through the pandemic uh, just to get access to basic health care. And so we do have to do a lot of work to build an infrastructure to make sure that we are supporting people with our partners um, who are seeking access. 25 million. That is, wow. That is a huge number. Don't feel like sitting in a waiting room right now? Planned Parenthood's got you covered as a leader in using new technologies to provide high-quality health care in ways that fit your life. Through Planned Parenthood's virtual appointments, you can get high-quality, affordable care your way by phone or video. Trusted providers will listen, give information, and support you in all of your health care decisions. Planned Parenthood's telehealth appointments are high quality, affordable, and private, just like in-person visits. Whether you need help with birth control, a prescription refill, or other sexual or reproductive care services, skip the waiting room and get the care you need when you need it. Planned Parenthood takes the stress out of health care and is ready when you are. Check out PlannedParenthood.com telehealth to learn more and book a virtual appointment. That's PlannedParenthood.com slash telehealth. One of the things you also talked about in the article, your resolutions that spoke to me as a woman of color also leading an organization is centering racial equity. You know, at Emerge, that's what we're doing, really centering equity and justice and the catalyst for the Brown Girls Guide to go from the blog format to the podcast format was we did a series called Being the Only Brown Girl in the Room, where we talked about the struggles of being women of color in politics, sometimes being the only woman of color in your department, in your organization, and the reality that organizations have to face it as well, that no one's really immune to this. So tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be doing at Planned Parenthood around racial equity. Yes, absolutely. And it is, um, you know, as Black women, brown girls who led traditionally or formerly white-led organizations, it is a very unique uh, space to be sitting in. I think that you know, the work that we are doing is we've established a federation-wide commitment to addressing racial equity in our own ranks. And, you know, part of that has been our, we've start, we're starting with a benchmarking survey around belonging and equity to make sure that we understand what we're actually solving for. You know, we, we have a lot of really important information from our staff, from our patients that are telling us where, where we are getting it wrong. We need to get get under under our the really important stories that we know are real, you know, and we know are are true because we've lived them and experiences them, them ourselves. We need to understand kind of deeper how to how to connect dots and 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 what are the right interventions for us? What 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 are the gaps in what our knowledge is? How are we growing leaders? How are we you know ensuring that we are um, you know reducing our own blind spots and our racial anxiety? All of the things that we should just be doing from a technical standpoint. But really, it's a it's a cultural shift, right? For me, it's about bringing bringing equity and the work that we're doing in equity is a 
as a broad framework into the office of the president so that every decision that radiates out from from my office into all of my leadership team has to has to match up to that equity framework and help us understand where are the trade-offs as we build, you know, different different work and and making yeah. sure that we're making those right choices. And then of course it's accountability, right? It's like making sure that, you know, we are we're also measuring ourselves, which is why I started with the benchmark because I think that actually helps us, you know, build out the right set of metrics to understand what the underlying drivers are around the inequity that we're seeing right now. So, um, you know, I'm a research head. So like I had to put together like the plan that, you know, felt authentic to me, um, but that I also know is grounded in literally how our brains and bodies process, you know, race and gender identity and differences. And so, um, so that's kind of how we're leading. But the general piece of it is there's this moment right now, and I hope you feel it too, where, I actually just feel quite free, you know, whatever freedom (laughs) looks like, you know, because we do have to imagine it a little bit for ourselves because we've never really been free. But in a moment where where the country, the world is being forced to grapple with racial equity and to be sitting in the seat knowing that, yes, now is not the time to be incremental. Now is the time to be bold and transformative and, you know, do what we need to do. I 100% agree with you. So last year, we did our equity and justice survey across our network. We did a presentation to everyone. And we were like, look, these are all the things that we have to work on. And it's just not a staff thing. It also has to be who are sitting on our boards, who's sitting on our cabinets. Are we really making this an inclusive experience for the women who are coming through our program? We know we know running for office is different for women, but it's also different for women of color. It's different for LGBTQ women, women with disabilities, making sure that we're taking in that broad spectrum. And especially for me to be the first Black woman leading the organization, how can I not... Yes. Not do this work, especially when I want more black, brown, indigenous women, women of color in, I have to make sure they're also getting the experience that I would have wanted to had. So how am I making this good for them as well? So I can't wait for us to compare notes and see how we can continue to make our organizations better. Absolutely. (laughs) And something else that you wrote that was really personal is to stop apologizing when you're parenting and when you're partnering. And for me, I love that. And I'm like, let me copy and paste this and send this to some of the team members because we'll be on Zooms and, you know, kids are running around and just being kids and they're always apologizing. And I'm like, stop. I say all the time, I'm like, please do not apologize. You're trying to work, you're homeschooling, the kids are hungry. We are all literally working where we live. So why was it important for you to say that not only to yourself, but to let the other moms, like people with partners know, hey, this is our life right now. We need to stop apologizing for really just handling it and making it through. 
Yes. You're essentially apologizing for being a mom or a partner or, or what, you know, for just being you. And, you know, as if it's unprofessional, as if like sitting in your, you know, at your, at your desk, zooming, you know, full time is actually the definition of professionalism anyway. Like we're, we're all making a way out of a way, you know, it, it, particularly um, felt important for me to say because the, the way the way communities get marginalized they, it starts with ideas about it starts about ideas around hierarchy, right? Like, you know, we value men for this, women for this. We value, you know, uh, you know, communities of color differently than we value white communities. Like all of the ways in which the ideas have changed around equality. I think we all kind of feel like, of course, of course, genders are equal. Of course, you know, races are equal. Like those things are, are kind of basic and, and built in. We are working in organizations that are fighting for policies to make those ideals real every day, right? And so we understand that there's still work to do to make the ideals real. But long after you address the ideology and you address the the kind of institutions, the laws, the practices that help us, there's a whole set of informal practices that keep that inequality alive, that inequity alive. And every time we apologize for saying, you know, oh my God, my kid needs to eat, or oh my God, I need to go to the bathroom, or please, you know, um, you know, I can't turn on my Zoom today because I didn't do my hair. We are replicating, you know, practices that are, you know, that ladder up to inequality and our values. And so we can't have one set of values and then then acknowledge these um, these informal practices as, as standard. Um, they just don't go together. So I'm trying to get us to be more coherent and, and to focus on really addressing those. Ooh, I love that. I love everything that you just said. And this has once been, once again, been a great interview with you, Alexis. So I do want to ask you, the first four years of the Biden-Harris administration are done. What is your hope for what they have been able to accomplish to make the world better around the work that Planned Parenthood does? Oh, my gosh. You are asking me. I just said I was free, and now you're asking me to do it about freedom? <laughs> Look, first of all, four years from now, COVID is over. Yes, yes. Amen. We're claiming that. Claiming that, um, that people are actually back out living safe and healthy and, and uh, productive lives and not worried about um, being in a pandemic, but also understanding the, the impact of it and that we have restored kind of um, an expanded access to healthcare. Hyde is gone, as I mentioned, so people have, have access um, and that, you know, we have, you know, this, the support and the recognition that, you know, um, that sexual and reproductive health care is health care, that abortion is health care, and that it is funded at levels appropriate and consistent with um, how people need to access that care and that we we are doing that work, um, that um, it is it is done through a really strong equity lens um, and, you know, not just racial equity, although that's obviously really important to, um, to us as, as brown girls, but there is a lot of geographic equity inequity that we need to address. There, we need to have better rural strategies of, for care. Um, you know, and I, 
I really hope that what we see in this current administration and cabinet, you know, to have a Deb Haaland and, you know, a Becerra, a Javier Becerra, like working together to talk about like what needs to happen in the interior, <laughs> what needs to happen over here and how race equity goes through it with our sister Susan Rice. I think all of that is what I hope to see. And then um, if I can just put one other uh, possibility onto the onto the table is that together after this after this last horrible four years of weaponizing racial and gender anxiety that we have worked to create the conditions for um, you know our our sister or some other sister who is um, able to uh, run and be seen as a viable candidate for um, holding the highest office in our land and in the world. Um, so the next four years is tilling the soil and creating the conditions and making sure that we are doing what we need to do um, to secure freedom. Thank you, Alexis, for joining us. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. And in between episodes, you can find the Brown Girls Guide to Politics at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The BG Guide. And the Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. And you can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Until next time, Brown Girls.